Well, good morning, everyone. That's better. <laughs> it's lovely to see a church full of people again. Uh, last week, I was preaching in a, another church, and we actually had coffee at the end of the service. So there's still, still a little way to go, but we're getting there. We're coming now to the next of these uh, signs in John's Gospel. So I've called this one from John chapter 9, When Jesus Comes Along. We all love to hear dramatic testimonies of people who've been converted to Christ and their lives transformed. One of the most memorable that I've heard was a friend of mine in Malawi whose name was Mike. Mike has now been a church pastor for a number of years in his Pentecostal denomination there. I first met Mike during our church leader training program, Learn to Serve, out there a few years ago in the town of Malangi, which is where he serves as a pastor. And we've kept journeying with him over the last few years. But it wasn't always like that for Mike. When he was 17, he was convicted of armed robbery in Malawi, and he was sent to prison for three years. A year into his sentence, he awoke one night, hearing a voice saying over and over again to him, if you were to die tonight, what would happen to you? If you were to die tonight, what would happen to you? Go and talk to someone. He obeyed that voice. He sought out someone in the prison who was a Christian. And that person said to him, that is the voice of Jesus. He's coming after you. Mike gave his life to Christ that day. He spent the remaining two years of his sentence in prison as a believer, reading the Bible, learning, praying, learning, praying, and being transformed within. For Mike, everything changed that day when Jesus came along. His relationships with other people, his usefulness in society, and his spiritual life, his relationship with Christ, and of course, his eternal destiny. After his release from prison, he became part of a new community, the church. He no longer needed to find his identity within a gang. Mike had been in despair, languishing in an overcrowded jail. He hadn't been looking for Jesus Christ. In fact, he was completely blind to the things of God. But Jesus had seen Mike. Such is the change that happens when Jesus comes along. Mike's experience was, in many ways, very similar to that of the man born blind in John chapter 9, which is the next of these signs from the Gospel of John that we're looking at. Just as for Mike, on that day, 
When Jesus came along, everything changed for that man born blind. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. And what a testimony he gained to the power of Jesus Christ to transform a life. You see, for a poor family in Israel in the first century, to have a child born blind would be a catastrophe. It would leave them hanging on the edge of survival. As he grew from a child into a man, he'd become a significant economic burden within his family. He'd be a mouth for the parents still to feed, and yet he couldn't go out to work. So, of necessity, he would become a beggar in the street. And we read that in verse 8. I've seen just the same as this in Malawi. Those who have physical disabilities sent out to beg on the street or at traffic lights where the cars are forced to stop and they can tap on the windows. It's the only way that they might contribute positively to the family's finances. This man born blind was someone who was made in the image of God. Yet he'd have grown up with so little sense of self-worth, so little value. At best, he would have received people's pity. More likely, he'd have just become invisible to those who passed by. Their eyes would, in effect, have become every bit as blind to him as his eyes were to them. But as verse 1 tells us, this man was not invisible to Jesus. Now, at one level, this encounter between Jesus and this poor afflicted man is, is quite simple. Verse 1 simply says, As he went along, he, Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. As he went along. We don't even know where this, this happened, where the event took place. As he went along, Jesus saw him. Jesus healed him. And the man came to believe in Jesus. At the simple level, that's what this story is. But at another, le another level, this narrative is far more complicated for us to understand. There's so much else going on. Because this healing by Jesus triggers a whole cascade of controversy. And it ripples down through his local community, as Emma described to us a few minutes ago so vividly. So let's just remind ourselves again of what happened in the whole 41 verses of this chapter that this story takes up. So Jesus and the disciples come along. Jesus sees the man and his disciples, and they rather insensitively ask about the cause of the man's blindness, which Jesus answers. That's verses 1 to 5. Jesus then rather bizarrely mixes up mud and saliva as part of the healing, verses 6 and 7. All the man's neighbours then get themselves involved, asking, is this really the same man that was blind 
Or is he just some kind of lookalike? Verses 8 to 12. The neighbours then call in the Pharisees. The Pharisees are a bit like the religious police in this situation, so they can investigate what's going on. So the Pharisees first question the man, then they talk to his parents. Well, the parents try and keep as quiet as possible and try not to get involved because they're afraid of being expelled from the synagogue, verses 13 through to 23. Now, remember, this was the one synagogue in the area. It wasn't as if they could just say, oh, we're not welcome here, we'll go down the road and go to another one. That was the synagogue that they were thrown out of or had a risk of being thrown out of. So they kept quite quiet. Some of those Pharisees then became fixated about this healing having taken place on the Sabbath, not interested in the healing of a person and the impact it had on him, but but the rules and the law and so on. They interrogated the man again, trying to discredit Jesus and his work. The healed man is quite brave. He simply responds by telling the facts. But that embarrasses the Pharisees. He's not doing what they want him to do. So, in frustration, they punish him by excommunicating him from the synagogue. It's a kind of power abuse. Verses 24 through to 34. And then Jesus reappears, first time since the beginning of the story. He speaks kindly to the man. And Jesus then reveals more about who he is and why he has come to this receptive man. And the man then comes to believe in Jesus. Verses 35 to 41. Now that's a lot of fallout from what starts as a very brief encounter between Jesus and this man. So what does the Gospel writer of John want us to learn from all of this? Well, first, I'm going to look at the issue of disability that's raised by the disciples in the first five verses, before then returning to the main message of the whole story uh, at the end. So, first of all, the question, why was this child born blind? Well, as I said, this is not actually the main reason, I believe, for this encounter being included in John's Gospel. But it is an important question that the story throws up that we may all at some stage in our lives find ourselves asking or being asked. Why was this child born blind? Why did this blindness or any other affliction we can think of, why did this happen? In verse 2, the disciples asked this question. Who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. In other words, they are asking, what caused this man to be born without his eyesight? It's a question that will tax anyone who experiences a profound personal tragedy or or family difficulty of this nature people in our own community around us, and and yes, even within our own church family, this may be a live issue. So I'm going to try and handle it sensitively. 
But I'm going to be seeking simply to get at what I believe the Bible seems to be saying in John chapter 9. Now, the rather blunt way that the disciples phrased that question in verse 2, that reflects a widely held view in those days in Israel that serious disability, such as being born blind, that came as a direct consequence of the sin of a specific individual. The disciples were asking, in effect, is this blindness a punishment for the parent's sin? Or is it a punishment for the man's own sin, even before he was born? I.e., was it caused by some kind of inherited sinfulness in the womb which God is punishing him for? Now, let's be honest. At this particular point, as they were walking past this poor man, that was probably not the most kind, not the most compassionate thing they could have said. They were behaving more like Job's wretched comforters, looking for someone to blame for the situation and focusing on that. Pastorally, they blew it. And let's face it, we've all said silly things at certain times with people which we come to regret. Nonetheless, Jesus tackles their question head on. At the start of verse 3, he strongly refutes both of the alternatives they give. Here, Jesus is saying very clearly, specific suffering of this sort is ordinarily not a direct consequence of specific sin. Okay, there are sins that are direct consequences. If someone decides to shoot someone and someone is paralyzed afterwards, the suffering is a direct consequence of the sin. But I'm meaning in in ordinary circumstances, like someone born blind. And he's saying definitely this is not the reason for congenital suffering and other illnesses like this. Now, that's not, in saying that, to deny in any way that we live in a broken world, a sinful world. We do. Suffering and brokenness first came into the world because of sin. That's clear from Genesis chapter 3. And right up to today, all humanity, all of creation, is groaning under the destructive consequences of sin. We can see that in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25, and elsewhere in the Bible. I wonder, are we sometimes a bit more like the disciples and a bit less like Jesus? We ask insensitive questions. We talk about people with disabilities as we simply pass by. In contrast, Jesus sets out for us in this story a beautiful threefold pastoral model. First, don't lay the blame on someone who's suffering in this sort of way or on their family. Second, 
do make a move. Make a move towards the person in need, not away from. And third, do whatever you can that's appropriate to help that person, materially, emotionally, or spiritually. Jesus was doing all three of those in the course of this encounter. But what about the second part of verse 3 and leading into verse 4? These verses seem far more challenging to understand than the beginning of verse 3, and and quite challenging to accept in many ways. Now here, the original text of John's Gospel potentially could be translated in two different ways. So I do want you to bear with me in this. I'm trying not to run away from the issues here. The traditional translation, which is how the NIV puts it, and the ESV likewise, says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So in this way of translating, Jesus is telling them that the purpose of the suffering in God's plan, he says, this is happening for this reason. It is happening so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, if that is the intention of the gospel writer, Jesus is telling them to look for the reasons for the blindness in God's future plans. He's saying the purpose of the blindness was for God's glory to be seen through his healing. Now, that's a tough one. I am trying not to dodge it. This is rightly affirming God's sovereignty, that God has total control over everything. And that's right. Without that, then he wouldn't be God, the creator. He wouldn't be God, the sustainer of all things. And the Bible does clearly teach that God takes responsibility for exactly how every one of us is made. If you look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And in Psalm 139, verse 13, the psalmist, speaking back to God, says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. God is saying, I do not make mistakes. But then this understanding of verse 3 can leave us with some very uncomfortable questions. Does this mean that this man's blindness was really part of some divine master plan? Did God actually afflict this man with blindness for the first half of his life just so that he could then heal him later in life and receive the glory for it? I think to get into it at that level is is taking it a bit too far. Our God is a God of love who promises us good and not harm. 
Sometimes we will see God's glory in, in healing from the suffering that comes as a consequence of the sinfulness of this world. Sometimes we will see God in his healing power, in giving complete relief from suffering. But perhaps in this life, more often, we will see his glory displayed in his sustaining power, upholding us through the suffering and ultimately freeing us from the suffering when we go to him in glory. I'm sure we can think of people, even within our own fellowship, who've modelled the way God's power sustains them through really difficult times of suffering of themselves and members of their family. Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, writes about his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 and 9. He says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But, I, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my power is made perfect in weakness. That can be the way of God. So God's healing power and God's sustaining power, they both equally give opportunities for us to display God's glory in our lives. But what about second possible translation of verse 3 from the original text? Not so many Bible translations go for this. They tend to put this in a footnote. But it is a possible way to render exactly the same words in the original language. We can translate those words in verse 3 as an instruction for us to follow. Verse 3, then linking directly into verse 4. Jesus' words then become, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but let the works of God be displayed in him for as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. In this case, then, these verses, rather than providing us with a reason for the suffering, for God's glory, it becomes an exhortation to do something about it. And notice Jesus didn't say, I must do the work of my Father. Rather, we must do this work together. That's his disciples with him. And this instruction then cascades down to us today. We must do this work to proclaim the good news of salvation to the world with boldness and to reflect his tender compassion to the poor, the downtrodden, and the suffering. These are the ways that we can and should declare the mighty works of God. And if you look at verses 4 and 5 in either way of translating it, there's an urgency to Christ's call to action. He says, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. 
He says we must do this work, and that's all of us, while it is still spiritually daytime. While we still have the opportunity to do it. For Jesus, his time of ministry would soon end, and it would transition from the time of ministry into the time of crucifixion, of death, and ultimately resurrection. For us, our years on earth to serve him are really very limited. And for the church, the years when we are free to speak of Jesus, to teach unfettered from the Bible, they may run out. In Malawi, our partners use this verse to express the urgent need there is to train church leaders there so that the church can be built up in Malawi while there is still freedom to do so, which there very much is at the moment. And that is the core training ministry of the Caruso Trust. The influence of, of Islam and other faiths is growing in Malawi year by year, seen it even in the time I've been going there. Mosques are being planted all along the rural roads and Western secular ideas are taking increasing root within the cities. One day, Malawi may enter the spiritual night when no one can work, when we cannot publicly display Christ and his glory. And that's already the case in some lands that formerly were open to the gospel. I wonder, will we here, will they in Malawi, one day look back and ask ourselves, how well did we use all those past years of freedom? So that's verses 1 to 5, why was the child born blind? But then second, and finally, how did this man come to see? And that's verses 6 through to 41. Jesus was not just giving physical sight to this man who was born blind. He was leading him on a journey of total liberation. Body, mind, and spirit. Jesus' messianic mission, which is described all the way through John's Gospel, that was to lead people to salvation and freedom. And this is just one example of the many filling John's Gospel of Jesus leading people to salvation and freedom. God's type of freedom, not man's. This is the work that we are all privileged to share in while it is day, spiritually. Bringing freedom and sight to the spiritually blind. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, we are in a spiritual battle. He said, the God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. So what was this journey to freedom for this man born blind? Well, first, obedience to Jesus brought him physical sight. 
As I mentioned earlier, Jesus took the initiative. He came to him and he healed him of his physical blindness. Jesus curiously mixed saliva and mud and rubbed it on his eyes in verse 6. What's this all about? Well, perhaps it's a symbol of creating new sight and new life. Just as God created people in his image out of the dust of the earth back in Genesis. It's a new beginning. He's a new creation. Jesus then sent him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. The man had a choice. He could obey Jesus or he could not obey Jesus. He chose to obey. And his obedience to Jesus resulted in his sight restored. But secondly, faith in Jesus brought him spiritual sight. Look at how the man's relationship with Jesus continued to develop through this chapter. In verse 11, he merely knows Jesus' name. He knows nothing more about him than that. He calls him the man they call Jesus. Then in verse 17, he declares Jesus to be a prophet. A prophet is a person who is faithfully declaring the truth from God. By verses 31 to 33, he says Jesus is someone who's been sent by God. And when he says nobody has ever heard of the opening the eyes of a man born blind, he's right. Because if you look at the Old Testament, nowhere in the Old Testament is such a miracle recorded. The man is coming to realize that Jesus is unique. Finally, in verses 36 to 38, the man then asks to know Jesus personally. He then believes that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Messiah, the one that was promised to his nation and the world, and he worships him as Saviour. The Pharisees had thrown the man out of the synagogue in verse 34. But Jesus welcomed him into the freedom of a new community, his new community of faith. So what liberation Jesus brought to this man's life? Freedom from the handicap of blindness. Freedom from the indignity of begging. Freedom from feeling that he had no value. And freedom, most important of all, from eternal sin and condemnation. What a powerful testimony that man gained to the freedom he knew in Christ. Just like my friend Mike had a powerful testimony to the freedom he discovered in Christ. Jesus is the only way to true freedom for us today. As Jesus had said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So I appeal to you, let Jesus come over to you. Ask him to open your blind eyes to see him for who he really is in all his glory 
and power. And then seek to make your life display his glory to this lost world around us. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that they, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Will you receive this wonderful gift of sight from Jesus?